you know, serve without diminishing myself, without burning out, without crushing my own soul and spirit, and yet be of service. You know, that interplay is what I what I care about. Check one, two, one, two. Is this thing working? You're listening to Rabbi Ariel Schollklapper, the wisdom and tools you need to thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode. Today, we're going to talk to Rabbi Sheila Weinberg, who uh, is my teacher. And so I'm lucky to be here talking to her because she was one of the instructors who gave me the Dharma in some way. I mean, she taught me how to be an instructor. Um, And so I'm excited to get to know a little bit more about her story. She's always sharing stories about her life through her teaching. That's how she teaches. So I'm lucky. I feel like I already know her a little bit. But I want everybody who hasn't heard from her yet to hear more about her and to get to know just the pleasure of of having her wisdom in their lives. No pressure, no pressure. Um, Before we get started, I'm going to just start us off with a prayer. As you know, the, the reason I'm doing this is just to give more people exposure to the teachers that I've been exposed to and have had the pleasure of learning from. But also, we want to give you new learning opportunities and give you hands-on skills for your own journey so that you can use these tools on a regular basis to help you create the kind of life that you want with the freedom to be able to feel connected and to to have meaning in your life in a way that we're going to talk about. And because this is free, we do ask that if you love it, you share it and you give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And that's one way that you can really support our work. At the end of our session, if you want to follow up with Sheila or myself, we'll have there will be links below in the notes section so that you can do that. So I'll start with a prayer for today, for our time today. I'm, I hope that, uh, that we're going to have some wisdom that comes out of this time that is going to help you have an easier life and will help you navigate the the complexity of sometimes difficult life with a little more ease and to have the strength to know that you're not the only one and uh, that we can have a a better society because of that, that internally and in our small circle of people around us and then ripple out into the greater world and hopefully, who knows, into the universe, if there, maybe there are other sentience that need our good energy. Um, and for that, I'll, I'll uh, end the prayer and say amen. And I'll hand it over to Sheila to give us a 10-minute practice, 10 or 15-minute practice that we can do together, that you can um, either, if you're like in the car and you're not going to be able to do this in the car, then, you know, pause it and come back and listen later or, uh, or do it, but with your eyes open, you know. Um, just pay attention to the road if you're driving. Ready? Great. Great. Greetings, Ariel. Thank you so much. So this is called uh, Ner Adonai Nishmat Adam. God's candle is the human soul. So I'm sitting in a comfortable chair facing the double windows looking into the woods. And it's early December in the north northeast US. The trees are bare. The sky is filled with low hanging clouds. It's getting colder and darker every day. I'm sitting quietly invite you to do the same, allowing the breath to come and go, practicing receptivity to just this breath. So as we sit together, 
A Hebrew verse from Proverbs floats through my mind. It is a verse I know well. It's used when we light Yurtzeit candles on the anniversary of the deaths of our close relatives. It is said when we light the tall candle that burns for seven days immediately after the funeral of a loved one, when we return from the cemetery. I lit many of these homes of people when I was the rabbi of the community. The rabbi, the, the verse is, Ner Adonai Nishmat Adam. God's candle is the human soul. It's a beautiful verse. It has always been an evocative verse for me, poetic. But when I really think about it, it gets confusing. It becomes difficult to understand if I think about it too much. So I need to just allow it to float in my mind. God's candle is the human soul just sitting here, breathing in and breathing out. I'm aware of the sensations of breath in my nose. in my throat, perhaps. In my chest. And or in my belly. I feel the warmth and coolness of the breath. calming and enlivening at once. The word for soul is almost the same in Hebrew as the word for breath. Nishama is soul. Nishima is breath. To breathe is to receive my soul. I breathe in my soul. To breathe out is to return the soul the breath to all of life. I breathe out God's light. The in-breath, I hear the words breathing in my soul. On the out-breath, I hear the words breathing out God's light. My heart, my soul, my breath, understand the verse. Even if my mind doesn't, the verse comes alive. I know I am in the right place and it is a miracle. Breathing in my soul. Breathing out divine light, sacred light, the light of the world. Let's just take a minute or so to breathe together across the miles, across the continents, 
time zones, times of day, the various states of our minds, bodies, hearts, and souls. As you become aware of the breath without any force or pressure, just feel the in-breath as you softly say, if you wish, breathing in my soul. And as you become aware of the out-breath, say softly on the inside, breathing out God's light, the light of the world. As we sit together, we become aware of the miracle of this one in-breath that arises in creation, that originates in love. We feel the blessing of this breath. As we sit together, we become aware of the miracle of this outbreath that returns to the unity, the divinity of which we are all. When you're ready, we can return to our, our time together. Open our eyes. Neat. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank you for that reminder. After a a practice like that, I feel like I kind of like coming out of a shavasana, like I'm coming out of like a resting pose. It's like waking me up slowly, you know? (laughs) my body is like relaxed and even my my i feel like my i've got to wake my voice up (laughs) um so i'm i'm curious where this all began for you i mean the, the mindfulness the the jewish mindfulness i mean you're among the trailblazers of of this process so i'm curious how it all for you, when where were you when you started practicing meditation? I know yoga is a very strong component of your practice. What was that? What was going on in your life that that began for you? Well, you know, everything is related to everything else. But let's start uh, when I graduated rabbinical school um, in uh, 1986. RRA. And I had been, it was a big deal for me to go to rabbinical school, huge deal. Um, I was one of the early women. I was inspired by Jewish feminism. I was divorced and I had two uh, kids, uh, little kids in school, single parenting, but I was found myself in Philadelphia in Mount Airy, which was an amazing place. Uh, I joined the Minion there at Germantown Jewish Center. This was in the 70s. 
And in my minion was Art Green and Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi. If you wow. can imagine, plus wow. some other uh, people. And they were just doing their thing, you know? And, uh, but I was connected to Zalman. And then I went to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical School. And Zalman was very inspiring because he, he was channeling this profound spirituality in Hasidut, but he wasn't a meditator and he wasn't teaching meditation. Uh, and Art was teaching Hasidut in a certain sense. I took one of his first classes at RRC that he taught at RRC, then he became president. And it was in, um, it was on, you know, basically spirit, the spirituality, how do we make spirituality of Judaism accessible? So I had those, plus I was part of Jewish feminist circles that were very, very important to me, liberating the voice of women after so many years of patriarchy. So, but rabbinical school was like, really, it wasn't hard intellectually as much as spiritually and emotionally. I was just completely wasted. I mean, first of all, I had to work. Second of all, I had my kids. Third of all, you know, I mean, it has totally transformed in these last 35 years, uh, RRC, completely. But then it was very, 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 very heady. It was all head separated from body. Mm -hmm. you know? And by the time I got out, you know, because I, I was looking for spirituality, blah, blah, blah. I was like numb on some level, spiritually. And at that point, I thought, I had a friend who was a meditator and she lived in Colorado. And I thought, well, oh, maybe I'll go to a meditation. I went out there, but I got waylaid by a boyfriend and I never made it. It's really interesting. And then I started rabbinical school and I, I started my pulpit and, um, the biggest thing that happened was I got sober. And that was after rabbinical school because I sort of got through rabbinical school drinking to mm -hmm. just keep me from freaking out, self-medicating. Yeah. Um, but then I realized this was not good. And I got sober through um, AA, which was a tremendous spiritual awakening for me. Um, and in retrospect, I don't know that I could have meditated as long as I was not sober. Huh. But in any case, I I had a, a tremendous loss in my life. But both, I, I reconnected. So I was single. I was single for 17 years. I reconnected with a boyfriend from um, high school. And we fell in love again. And he died. Oh, God. Which was heartbreaking for me. Huh. And at that point, I moved to... I had friends in North, I was living in Philadelphia and I had friends and I had a pulpit in Philadelphia, but I had friends in um, Amherst, Massachusetts. And they said, um, you know, there's a job there, Sheila, it would be great for you. So I, my daughter was going to college. My son was going to ninth grade. He was very unhappy in his school in Philly. So I got the job and I moved and it was like total. They had never had a rabbi before. I could do whatever I wanted, basically. You know, they weren't affiliated. And um, the head of the search committee, I mean, because this is the core story, was a on the board of Insight Meditation Society. Oh, wow. Ted Sloven. He was a meditator. And, a, and Insight Meditation Society was one of the first, um, you know, it was Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg. It was all the Jews who got into, you know, Asia and come back and they were teaching and this was a place and it was right near, uh, it was like less than an hour from Amherst and less than an hour in the other direction was Kropalu. And I had already been to Kropalu. I had already followed, uh, I had already started a yoga practice, you know, off and on. So Ted says to me, Rabbi, you know, we are between the premier yoga center for Palo and a premier Buddhist center, IMS. This is like the perfect place for you. Now, how did he know that? I have no idea, but it was true. It was completely true. But it took another year or so for him to introduce me to Joseph. But he was close with Joseph and... Um, no, no, this happened first I, for me to actually go on a retreat. And my first retreat at IMS was a 10-day retreat. And I had another very good friend, Paula Green, who was Art's friend. 
who was also a Buddhist, our art sister, art green sister, who was also a Buddhist. And she encouraged me to go to IMS. And I, my first retreat was 10 days. It was like 1990. That's a serious serious commitment, 10 days. And it was a 10 day sign. I was sober. I was already sober now for three and a half years or something like that. And I, it was horribly difficult. It was so hard. And yet I realized by the end of the time that it was so amazing. And what I realized at that time was I could do this in Jewish. I could teach this in Jewish. See, I already had some of the language and some of the approach of Zalman in art in my, you know, uh, but of course that was, you know, just, I felt that in my body and soul. Um, but anyway, starting there, I kept going to retreats and um, I did some long retreats. The longest I'd ever did was six weeks. Wow. And I did month longs here and there. I did a lot of retreats, but a couple of years, a year after that, or two years after that, uh, Ted introduced me to Joseph and Joseph was like, you know, there's really nothing in Judaism that was of any interest. And I said, well, you know, I don't really feel that way. So we got together a group and it was right around the time of the June Lotus. And we got together some of the people who were like Jubus and Bujus, you know, and we had a gathering. And then the following year we had another gathering. So I think that was 93. And that was the year Sylvia came, Sylvia Borstein. Yeah. And um, what I, my fantasy was that Art Green and Paula Green would have a dialogue. You brother know, and brother and sister, one who did the deep Jewish spiritual path and one who did the deep Buddhist mindfulness path. And, but the first year, I don't remember exactly what, one year he was in Israel and the other year she was in India or something like that. So they had a dialogue with other people. But there was, there was some really interesting people in Amherst um, who were interested in this stuff and uh, really cool people. And when I met Sylvia, I just felt madly in love with her. And she fell in love with me. And um, Rachel Cowan at the time was working for the Nathan Cummings Foundation. And Rachel was in, she wasn't that interested in this stuff, but there was a guy, Charlie Halpern, who was the head of Nathan Cummings and was a Buddhist. Jew, a Jew who followed got and was tremendously excited because they were they were um, they were given the message or the mission, the Nathan Cummings Foundation, to do something with um, the Nathan Cummings money, Sarah Lee, that was going to be inspiring to the Jews. And Rachel was working for them. And Charlie got it that Sylvia and I could teach this and it would be amazing. We could teach together. We didn't need to do conferences and this and that, but we could teach together and I would be the rabbi and she would be the Dharma teacher. So we started doing that and Jeff came, Jeff Roth came to like the first or second retreats and Jeff was like, oh, I can do this with you. So that's when we started and we got the money and instead of doing it at a Buddhist place, we did it at El Chaim. And Sylvia, Jeff, and I started teaching, and we had money to bring all kinds of random people there. And I was, meanwhile, still the rabbi at the shul, and I was doing this, and I was still doing my own practice very, very deeply, uh, and my own learning, and my own Dharma learning. And I went to some of their programs. Uh, Jeff and I did their uh, dedicated practitioners programs, like five retreats with all their people, and then I did another thing with them. And um, then Rachel said, you know, we have to take this further. We have to bring it out of, you know, out of the margins more into the center. And that's when, and also Charlie met Art and also Michael Fishbank, people who really study these sources. And uh, we decided, that's when we decided. And And then Rachel was very close with Nancy Flam who had moved to Northampton became like a very close friend of mine. And they had started the Jewish Healing Center. So there was 
this kind of energy all together. And that's when we started the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. And the first thing was, the idea was we're going to bring rabbis in and give them serious retreats and awaken in them, not only the capacity to do the practices, but the understanding, the deep level of what they were teaching and praying anyway, another level, another depth. And we were going to do it in Jewish, not in Buddhist. We were going to do it all in Jewish, although, to be absolutely honest, it was deeply informed by the practices that we learned from the Buddhist. But it was also able to be spoken in a Jewish, mystical Jewish language. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, how it all began and moved out from that. And then at one point, Rachel said to me, we were doing these cohorts and this and that, rabbis. She said, you know, Rachel, Rachel, Aleha Shalom, she passed away three years ago. She was a, a great, a girl, great insight human. And she liked me and she loved me. I loved her. And um, uh, she thought I was a good teacher. And she said, you know, Sheila, you have to teach other people to teach what you're teaching. You can't be the, the only one doing this, you and Jeff. Um, she wasn't that close to Jeff. And uh, I said, okay. So I got two students, Jordan, Ben Datapel, and yeah. Ben Rothman. And we studied together for like a year. And I figured, okay, I taught two students. And they were saying, no, 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 there are a lot of other people that want to do this. There are people <laughs> that want to learn how to teach. So that's when we started. And then I said, well, I can't do this by myself. The, the, the logical person to ask to do this was Jeff. So that's, I asked Jeff, and then we developed together the Jewish Mindfulness Teacher Training, which had five cohorts. And a lot of people learned and and then the thing started going out there, you know, for better, you know. Yeah. And there, and that's how I got trained. I mean, I was, I, I mean, I was just kind of doing it myself. And then Jeff said to me, like, why don't you do the training? You know, and I said, what, for what, you know, I'm trying to keep it inside, <laughs> but it sounds like you were, you know, you were like, you felt because of the, the, probably the position you were in and the, mentorship that you were being, being given and the slack you were given at the synagogue as well to do this it was like almost encouraging you to bring this into a jewish context somehow right 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 at one point one of the members of the synagogue said you know rabbi you're doing this everywhere we have to do something here so that's when we started like i think it was a wednesday morning meditation group at the synagogue and um you know, the meditation minion, whatever. And then people got annoyed because we didn't have like other minions, you know? <laughs> so I said, look, if you want a traditional minion, start another one. So they did on Tuesday. So we got two minions out of it for the school. <laughs> That's so interesting. I feel like usually it's the opposite. Most places they have the traditional minion and then this becomes an add-on as opposed right, to the other way. Reversed. The spin-off of the of the meditation minion is <laughs> a traditional minion. <laughs> so I'm I guess I'm curious, like what is it? What does it mean? Why is it so important to you? Because you've been, you have in some way for the last twenty years or so, right? It's twenty twenty five years or so, dedicated a chunk, a good chunk of your life. 30. It's actually 30. thirty years at this point. Yeah. So close to 30. Yeah. It's like you've dedicated a good chunk of your life to this. And I'm curious what it means to you that these, all these practices, how does it connect with you as a spiritual being, as a rabbi? Well, I really believe it's been helpful in my life, personally helpful in my life. Um, in that I suffer less and cause less suffering to others. I suppose you'd have to ask my children first and foremost, you know. Uh, well, it's relative, and, uh, so, you know, they don't know what it would yeah. have been otherwise. Well, they do know because they uh, they lived with me before. Um, uh, but it's, it's a cultivation really um, of both compassion is really the core and through compassion wisdom. And seeing those connections, but why? But you know, I can't say why it it just 
manifested through me. It simply did. You know, it simply did. It called me. I it it moved me. I met it. I was able somehow to meet it. And it was not easy. There was a lot of release during the whole period. All practice includes also letting go and letting go of suffering and letting go of confusion and letting go of delusion. And um, I did remarry in Mass in Massachusetts. I met somebody who is Jewish, but not religious and is not a meditator um, or a yogi. Um, he's kind of a Marxist intellectual <laughs> academic. And um, we've been married almost, uh, you know, close to 30 years. I mean, 27 years or something like that. And that's given me a chance to really practice uh, also in the intimate way. Uh, the other thing is I really, I am an activist and I really care about uh, social justice and the planet. And I, um, very important. And even in the Jewish mindfulness teacher training, we included a whole section on the relationship between social justice. Part of it comes out of my feminism, part of it comes out of my study, part of it comes out of being a kid of the 60s, you know, growing up in the 60s. Um, and, you know, I am, I guess you'd call me a, a child of the left in the sense that I, I want to change um, the hierarchies. I want to liberate our cultures from the hierarchies of sexism and racism, white supremacy that are rising so strongly now, anti-Semitism, seeing the other as less than and seeing myself as less than and projecting that on the other is really my fear. And this is what I've learned through practice, you know, that to working with my judgments and my fears. So a lot of it is working with judgment and fear, but working with it with kindness. And I will say that, I don't know, seven years ago, this is an interesting story because all my um, practice was with, um, Basically, the insight meditation people and the spirit rock people um, that they, they come from the Theravadan tradition, although they're pretty broad. And Sylvia was very open to a lot of things, but it wasn't that I didn't really have <clears throat> other forms. And I was introduced by accident to this teacher, John McCransky, uh, who Lama John McCransky, who has his lineage, a Jewish guy, a professor whose lineage is through um, the Tibetan world. Oh. And I was introduced to him um, through his book that came to me by accident. Anyway, Lo Chashuv uh, also has a strong social justice uh, piece to him. And for me, it's very important to re constantly relate the inner work and the outer work and to know that it's not our fault that we're not bad people because we're fearful. Uh, and, and the other is not a bad person because they're other, you know? And this is what's sort of baked into our systemic, the systems that we live in, the hierarchical separating systems. So a lot of this does come out of feminism. But anyway, John adopted um, Tibetan Buddhism in a way that really touched me and that really reverberated to me to Jewish, to Judaism and prayer. So I started studying with him and practicing with him. And it's sort of been a whole new phenomenon period of my practice. Um, and I I've written, I've written, you know, I wrote my memoir, Surprisingly Happy. And then I wrote this book called God Loves a Stranger, which was inspired by John and some of that work, which is the inner outer work. And I have a new book coming out oh. soon called Let Us All Breathe Together. And it's always the same stuff, but you know, it's all, you know, meditation. And I think actually this piece that I read is in that dam that I led this morning. So it's it's my stories. Like you said, I tell stories. How do I see this in my family? How can how can we I be a good, valuable person and not, you know, do what I'm called to do and not this at the same time that I thrive, you know, serve without 
diminishing myself, without burning out, without crushing my own soul and spirit, and yet be of service. You know, that interplay is what I, what I care about. A lot of uh, professionals in service would be are asking themselves the same thing. I think the pandemic has really turned up the pressure and heat on that for a lot of people. They're feeling that they're um, it's like the inner process is not being tended to while they're doing that mm-hmm. outer process. So I, I, exactly, I mean, yeah, it was exactly why we started the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. I wanted to bring rabbis in and teach them about their inner life and how they had to care for their inner life if they wanted to do this work. More or less successful, I don't know, but you know, maybe with some, maybe not. You know, I mean, and the rabbinate is changing and the congregational world is changing, but this is John's teaching. He calls, one of the things he calls sustainable compassion training. Mm. Sustainable Mm. compassion. And just to say, so this guy closes it up, that I don't do a lot of meditation teaching now. Right now, what I do, and I'm 75 years old, I'm going to be 76 in March. I have a group at the synagogue I belong to in Philadelphia Tuesday morning that I share with another rabbi, and we have a meditation group. So I teach every other week. Okay. Sure. 10 minutes on the Parsha, always on the Parsha. And then we sit. And and then I, what I do, what I developed over these years came to me was spiritual direction. So I see individuals. I work with a lot of individuals, including rabbinical students at the Recon College and faculty at Hebrew Union College and various essentially rabbis and therapists and caregivers for the most part. One-on-one. Once a month, not like every day, not like a therapist. And it's it's not therapy, it's it's spiritual direction, but it's informed by the practice and the and the meditation. And a lot of my people are interested in meditation and do meditate, but like it's not the Yeah. So you've been open about your recovery and um, sobriety. And I'm curious how this practice fits into that. Oh boy. Or could benefit people who are also themselves in recovery. I mean, well, those who have followed the t- uh, 12 steps know that the 10th step is thought through prayer and meditation. Um, brings in meditation very clearly, prayer and meditation. 10th step, it's interesting. So it works with the 12 steps. But for me, uh, I would say, oh boy. Drinking was a way of hiding from my pain. Um, primarily, and all of our addictions are ways of avoiding um, being with our pain. Now, it's very hard to be with pain when you're judging your pain. And this is the most important, I've said this, I think this is the most important part of mindfulness practice or meditation. How can we be with our pain? And this is also in the work I did with John and through the Tibetans. And look, it's absolutely there in Judaism. That's a whole other story, you know, but we have somehow for various reasons, which I've thought about too, a lot of the Jewish world has kind of not gone there has not used our own resources, which we actually have, or translated our own resources. But in any case, um, I mean, one can like or not like the 12 steps. The essence of it is for me, um, um, first of all, the vulnerability. It was very important to be vulnerable and honest about, you know, somebody. And you can do this in therapy, but it's powerful to do it in a, in a 12 step thing with other people. Cause I had a therapist who said, Oh, your drink is not a problem. You see, I was high function. I was a rabbinical student. I was a rabbi. I was super high functioning. I, I was a mom of, of kids. I mean, I had, you know, social justice issues. I was doing feminist, blah, blah, blah. I had boyfriends. I was like super high functioning. How could I have an issue? Right. How could I be 
how can I be an alcoholic? That's ridiculous. Right. Usually the image is like somebody who's in the alley drooling on themselves, not the person who's accomplishing all the things, right? And that is not true. Uh, But it took a lot to break through that, you know, because that was my image too. I'm functioning. I had a few things that were like wake up calls, like, you know, like falls and things like that. And uh, a couple of blackouts and, and one circumstance after another, um, read some things and I don't know, I eventually just fell apart and somebody said, you know, Finally, somebody said to me, friend, you know, go here, go there, go there, go there, find somebody, go to this, you know, get help, get help, get help. You know, because I didn't think I needed help. That's a, a big block for people. People don't mm-hmm. think they need help. Or are they ashamed of, there's a sense of shame in getting the help you need. Right, exactly, exactly. Which is exactly. why I'm so grateful that you talk about it. Because yeah, I think it gives, and that's why I wanted to bring it up here, is it gives other people the opportunity to say, like, it's nothing bad about you. It's nothing wrong with you. This is something that happens for whatever reason, right? So just you have, there are resources out there for people to get sober, to find the resources and the help that they need. And, and then this meditation, these meditative practices can support that. I was interested in the element of the divinity that you like, you know, I've, I've interviewed a few people and not everybody jumps straight to the, okay, well, God's soul is, you know, just kind of like jumping into the God language, the divine language right away because of probably because for a lot of reasons, but God has somewhat become a dirty word. And, um, and then there's also this hierarchy, hierarchical, patriarchal, like whatever the one in the Bible and I'm curious how you, as a feminist, as a teacher, as a person, come to use that word so fluidly. What do you mean when you're saying God, divine, and how is that all connected? Because it seems like it's really, really wrapped up in the practice. It's not disconnected at all. You're not even trying to hide it. I'm curious how that all comes together for you. Well, that's a work in progress, I would say. Um... And I agree, and, and I don't always use it. I did use it here. Uh, I, I often don't use it. I often, for others, you know, because I know how triggering it can be for others, always coming up with other words. I got a recent one that came, um, living presence, mm. you know. The, the, you know, so I, I agree, I agree. It's it's a bad word for a lot of people, uh, Jews, a lot of Jews. <laughs> um, for me, um, I just could feel the energy of, you know, Yudhe Vavhe, the divine unfolding. Um, there is no name. God is simply a blank for, you know, to how I understand it. It's, it's you know, it's, a, it's like a blank, but it's for, um, you know, in, in AA, they say the higher power um, to trust in, um, you know, AA says it's very, very good. It says, you know, the only thing you have to know about God is it's not you. You know, it's not your mishigas. You know, it's not your mind thinking, thinking, thinking. But you belong to the higher power. And you can listen deeply and open to a wisdom and an energy. You know, it's in yoga, prana you know, that is present in your being, but doesn't come from you that you did not create. Um, But you can acknowledge, you can witness, you can allow, you know, so it's compassion, it's love, it's the divine attributes, you know, it's the midot. Um, I mean, I think just the fact that we, in Judaism, you can't pronounce the name of God, you know, there really is no name of God. There is no name of God in Judaism that, that you know, the Art Waskell thing, I don't know if he came up with this, it's, but, you know, it's the breath. It is the breath. They're all yud heh vav they're all, ver, you know, 
so I work with it and I'm trying to be, you know, because yeah, it's certainly not the Christian God or the Orthodox fundamentalist God. It's certainly not that God. Right. You know, um, as far as genders go, I don't know. It's beyond and above all genders and all minds. It's beyond the mind. You know, it's, it's, it's primal consciousness. Um, it's loving awareness. Uh, you know, it's emptiness and fullness. Uh, you know, I could go on and on about what it is or isn't, but there, nothing is going to make it specific. What's important is uh, what's worthwhile is to allow something in and know that you can and 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 it and that it is it's in you, it's part of you. Thank you. It's here. Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking in that in that way, it's you're bringing good words to the thing I'm trying to. And I think it's almost like this practice. And we talked about it earlier on, but the practice itself in its depth leads you to feel that. Yeah. It's like, can. Can. it can. Yeah. And, um, and I've felt, I mean, I have felt it most powerfully in practice. And that's why mm-hmm. I'm so excited about teaching it is because I wanted that feeling, but it came and went, you know, you know, every once in a while, I'd get that, I'd catch that feeling, mostly in my youth and my really young childhood. And then, you know, I think most people are trying to get that when they go to the synagogue. That's their expectation of hopefully what might happen in that space. But it's almost like whatever the system in this, in, in traditional synagogue space is not going to get you there. Um, for most for many sure. people. Yeah, I'm not sure even people go there to get that. Good question. Yeah. I mean, they go to synagogue for other things, to belong, to schmooze, to, you know, just have a level of comfort, you know. Uh, I mean, some are looking for that, and they're not going to find it. I mean, there's also music. Yeah. And prayer. You know, I, I work with some cantors, and, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I think we're in a, a period of time of, you know, rediscovering spirit. Because it was <clears throat> in a certain way. Or the fundamentalists and the liberals, you know, lost the fundamentalists have it in their own way. Yeah. Very rigidly. But for the liberals, you know. It just came in here, you know. Intellectual, yeah. And so it's a rediscovery. So the mindfulness is one piece of that. It's one piece of that. It's not the whole thing. It's, you know, um, people that are rediscovering, you know, people teaching Zohar. Like, <laughs> yeah, mind-blowing stuff mind-blowing that's 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 the essence of it <laughs> and, and a felt mind experience. wants to separate yeah we have to go beyond separation mm. i love that we're so separate and we're so separate from the earth duh yeah we've forgotten that this is like without these trees we can't breathe <laughs> you know the only reason we're able to exist is because of these green things, you know, and we're like, try to subjugate them. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. So it's like the good news and the bad news. The bad news is things are really pretty dire. The good news is there seems to be some opening, some spiritual renewal somewhere. I hope so. So maybe that's a good way to segue into our, your prayer for our time together um i will add the a a link to contact you to purchase your books down in the show notes and um if anyone wants to follow up with you or with me you'll be able to do that and um 
yeah, maybe we'll leave this, leave this time with a prayer for what we hope the future could look like or, or our time spent will impact the world. Mm. Well, I guess the, um, the central Jewish prayer is the Shema, you know. And what do we say? We say, listen, listen, pay attention. Notice. May we notice. May we notice. May we notice what is true with profound kindness. May we notice what is separate and complex and so much difference and multitudes of multitudes of difference, moment to moment, being to being. And let us notice that everything is also one. Let us know unity, connection, sense of belonging deeply. Shema Israel. Elohim. Amen. Thank you. To stay updated on new episodes, subscribe on iTunes or follow on Facebook.com slash Rabbi Shulk. That's Rabbi Shulk, R-A-B-B-I-S-H-O-L-K. Hey, so if you're really serious about this, come on down to ravariel.com. That's www.rav. A-R-I-E-L dot com. Take our free trial, do the self-learn path or try group coaching or even come apply to work with me one-on-one. And you'll give yourself the accountability and the support and the step-by-step path that you need to feel calmer, more mindful and happier with your life. So come on down, www.raviel.com. See you there.